Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Talking Snooker with Phil Haig and Nick Metcalf. Once again, talking about the game we all love. Phil, great to see you, sir. Let's say straight away, congratulations to Zhao Zingtong. A stunning 9-0 win over Yan Bing Tao in the German Masters final. What a success for Zhao. What a season he's having. Yeah, absolutely incredible. Um, that, that looked like it was going to be a close final. I think I even looked at the betting beforehand and... Uh, Jan was the marginal favourite there, so uh, Zhao made a mockery of those odds. It was yeah, incredible stuff. To follow up the UK with this kind of performance is amazing, and it does it does look like a star has finally been born. And uh, yeah, it's it's exciting to see what's next for him because it was amazing. Not just the final hammering Judd Trump, even uh, beating Mark Williams in the first round. Lots to enjoy there from Zhao. Incredible stuff. No, it really was, and you know we were saying at the UK, let's not go overboard you know it, there's much more nuance than just saying everything's changed but you know it felt to me like there's a bit more substance to that changing of the guard narrative now because it's happened a second time really backing up the UK and of course those old timers those old stages will, will win but this was the youngest aggregate age in a final for nearly a generation Phil that's significant isn't it yeah absolutely yeah um and the calmness, I think, more than anything. Um, he's never looked phased by anything. He, I think the only thing that would might phase him is upsetting his friend, which um, he clearly wasn't too bothered by. But, yeah, um, amazing stuff. And as I say, it's exciting to see what's next for him. It really is. Now, Phil and I are even more excited than usual to be with you uh, on this new episode of Talking Snooker, because we really do, as we've been telling you for a few weeks now, have a very special guest with us. Indeed, we are joined by snooker royalty. This man's lifelong association with this sport has been profound. He grew up with his snooker-playing father, Jeff, and enjoyed a successful two-decade-long career, becoming a major part of snooker's golden era in the UK. He reached as high as number three in the world rankings, 
and claimed a number of tournament victories, including the International Open and Scottish Masters. He retired in 2003 and since then has become one of the great voices of the game, working now as a commentator and pundit for both ITV and Eurosport. We are delighted to say that Neil Folds joins us. Neil, it's so good to see you. How are you? Nick, that's a great build-up. I'm very well, thank you. And to you, Phil. Lovely. Yeah, it's great to have you on. We've been looking forward to this for a while. And so are the listeners. We've had people get <laughs> contact in droves. It's been amazing. Well, let's see if we can do it justice. <laughs> <laughs> let's hope so. Let's be topical straight away and talk about that German Masters, Neil. I mean, you've obviously been around, you know, playing yourself, seeing the game for many years, indeed decades. How special is Xiaoxing Tom, would you say? Well, I think we've always known what a good player he, he could be. But over the years, there have been a lot of players who have got lots of potential um, that have not quite lived up to it. And I'm not talking about the last four or five years. I'm talking about all the years I've ever been involved in the game. There have been really brilliant players, talent-wise, that make the game look easy, make everything about the game look easy. But I've not always backed up with results. And, you know, for a very short period of time, it looked like Xiao Jintong might go that way because he has dropped off two already. I mean, I remember seeing seeing him as a wildcard player uh, going back to when he was 15 years of age. And I thought, wow, this guy looks special. But um, it's all coming together now, but it's all happened so quickly because if you think about it, it was only this tournament in the qualifier where he played Stuart Carrington way back in October when it all came together. He made four centuries in that match. He barely won a match all season. And it's just clicked since then. He's been quite incredible. The UK Championship is not just a, some other throwaway ranking event, as we know. And now he's backed up so quickly with this performance and he's getting better, but he's improving at a rate of not. So I think it's very exciting for the game. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people had said, I heard Alan McManus say he looked like a future world champion and Ronnie O'Sullivan's always spoken very highly of him, Mark Williams as well. But there was almost no wins to back it up, was there? And I suppose there, there is always the, as you say, there's always the question mark as, a, as to whether it will ever click because, um, you know, that was his first ever final, wasn't it? I think he'd only been to one semi-final for the UK. So he, he was making almost no sign of it on the table, really. If you look at this season, OK, now he's over 100,000 points ahead of everybody going into the Players' Championship, right? But that really is all about two events because... The 200,000 points he got for the UK and the 80,000 points he got for the German Masters is one thing, but he's done nothing. He's hardly won a match in anything else. He's got <laughs> 5,000 for the World Grand Prix for, for the, by being in it, and he got 4,000 at the um, uh, English Open, So and a bit out of the Championship League. So he's done nothing else. But what he's done in those events tells us all we need to know, really. I do think that... Um, the World Championships, and when we talk about whether he's going to be a World Championship, I know this is a question for another day. The World Championship is a very different beast to anything else. Let's be honest. We've touted so many players as possible champions, but come April and May of uh, probably this year, we're going to see all the same faces there or thereabouts. There aren't too many sort of new recruits who come in and take that game by storm because the way that it's played, the sort of event is likely that Jan Bingtown might be more of a danger at this stage. I mean, I think if he's good enough, he'll end up world champion. But right now, what we're seeing is, is something special. But, you know, the world championship, let's be honest, that's when you like to Selby and 
and Kyron Wilson and all these guys come into the mix. So I don't know what will happen at the Crucible, but we should enjoy what we're seeing because he is incredible talent. Yeah, really I wondered, is. and I, I don't want to be critical of him at this stage or any stage, really, but if there's one thing that may have been holding him back and still you can see a little bit, is that he still misses a lot in his, like the 50s and 60s. And he, he seemed to miss like the crucial ball, the frame ball, a few times, even in the tournament he's just won. And it, it, would you say that's just a concentration thing? Maybe he lacks after, after things come a bit too easy for him, even? Yeah, I think there's, look, the, the players that make the game look easy often make the, the most elementary of mistakes. I mean, I think that Jack Lazowski, and I know his name gets mentioned a lot, but he's in the same category, isn't he? He's someone who's a beautiful player to watch. He's been quite infuriating to watch at times because of the mistakes he makes. So he almost pots the hard ones and misses the, the simple ones. And I think for a long time, Xiao Jintong has been like that. I thought it was interesting in that final because I was looking forward to it greatly. Unfortunately, it was a complete washout, wasn't it? Let's be honest. No one really wants to see a whitewash final. There's been a couple of um, very easy finals in Germany that, that when Mark Williams beat Graham Dot 9-1, it was 7-1 going into the evening session. Everyone hoped there'd be a bit more to it, you know, as the evening went on. But by half past seven, it was all over. People wandering around in the, 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 the uh, foyer of the, uh, the, the venue and all that, thinking, well, you know, what are we going to do now? And then, well, I think there was an exhibition that night as well, as I believe there was this time. But Finals that end so quickly aren't any good, actually. That's not his fault. And his job is to win them. And clearly there was no friendship between the two of them. So that was the only downside is that the final never was a non-event. Um, interestingly about that, I mean, you pointed out that Bingtan might have been a small favourite to win the match. I'm led to believe when they practice, uh, and I think both players have said this, that... Uh, Zhao Jintong beats him and he's been beating him for quite a while. So that may have been a factor in it being so easy mm. that someone like Yan Bingtao probably needs a match to get his teeth into rather than practice because I suspect that Zhao Jintong just makes the game look easy full stop. So maybe there'd been a few hidings that had taken place behind closed doors in, in an academy that made this final so one-sided because nothing pointed to that. But he was absolutely ruthless from start to finish. And champions are ruthless. I mean, Steve Davis was the most ruthless of all. You know, he beat Mike Hallett. He whitewashed him in the final. He beat Dean Reynolds whitewashing him in the final. So it's not new, but it, it doesn't make for great, uh, great fun for all the dignitaries that turn up <laughs> and hoping to see a great night because he, he refused to let it be a great night. But that's what, as I say, great sports people are not interested in the occasion, are they? They're interested in the win. Mm -hmm. No, he was. And he, and, and he made a big point of saying, look, I didn't want to let him get any kind of in, you know, he's that dangerous. And it doesn't matter how far I was ahead, I had to get over the line. You're right, he was so ruthless. But funny enough, you know, I've been saying, and not just in recent days, but quite a lot, that I think Yan Bing Tao has all the attributes that you need to sort of win the really big ones, including the World Championship. Obviously, this is a heavy defeat for him, Neil. I mean, are you worried about how this might affect him? Or is it simply that, listen, heavy defeats happen, they've happened throughout the history of the game, it's kind of one of those things. I'm not too sure because the, if you think about it, the player that's the Chinese player that was has been coming through, that's kind of not disappeared off the radar, but it's been a bit of a nearly man ever since. Zhou Yu Long lost nine 0 in that final to Neil Robertson in the European Masters, didn't he? And if you think about his results since, he's been a bit disappointing, hasn't he? He was unlucky to miss out on the Masters, unlucky to miss out on the Grand Prix, missed out by one spot on both. He's a very good player. But I think that losing so heavily in that final 
all the positives in to get into the final are lost a little bit. Bing Tao is, listen, he's as hard as nails. He's beaten Selby on a number of occasions. But um, it's quite a defeat to take, and we'll see how that goes. I mean, um, I'm not concerned about him at all because I think he is such a terrific player. I mean, I really enjoyed not only the win, when he beat Mark Selby, that was his classic game in, in Berlin, but he had to go on that evening and play Ryan Day, who led him, and then he just got stuck into that match, didn't care how long it lasted, and beat Ryan as well. And, you know, he made a, a big break at one point at 4-3, down 60 behind to win that frame. He was a brilliant match player, but, you know, on the day of the final, he was outclassed. Where he goes from here, I don't know. But I think that um, at the Crucible, he's going to be someone you have to scrape off the table. For someone who's going to be 22 in a, a week or two, you know, that is quite something to be yeah. that kind of a player. Because even all the great players like Stephen Hendry and Steve Davis, at that age, mm. they weren't that... Even Steve Davis wasn't that sort of player at that age. So he's a very interesting one. For someone so young, he's an incredible match player. But he absolutely had no answer to what we saw from, you know, his good pal on Sunday. So it was all very interesting, you know, to, to, to see the way that match unfolded. I think there's history between them, like I say, on the practice table. Mm. But um, listen, I think both players, there's a lot of people that would swap, would happily swap their careers for either of those two at the moment. Yeah. I wonder, it's easy to forget because Zhao looks about 12 and Jan might look a few years older than he actually is. Obviously, yeah. Zhao is the older of the two, and they talk about their relationship being almost like brothers. And Zhao could have could have big brothered him a little bit there. Maybe he does that in the practice table as well. And that's what came out. <laughs> it's very odd, isn't it? As I say, you know, you go back to the age thing, and it, you know, Bing Tao's a real grinder, and it just doesn't. It goes against the grain for somebody who's so young. Um, it, it was a great occasion, and and um, I hope you know that. Um, Everyone who was at that final enjoyed it, you know, enjoyed the occasion because it is something quite special over there. I maintain that that venue is as good as anywhere there's ever been for atmosphere because I've been to the finals weekend and it really is quite, uh, it's quite something, um, you know, in line with what we've seen at the Crucible and the Conference Centre and Goffs and all these other places. But um, I think it's a very special, I think maybe, maybe they deserved a little bit more than what the final ended up being, but, you know, you can't really... Nothing you can do about that, is there? No, and I, you're right. It, it was a shame. I understand that there was an exhibition. I think Kyron Wilson, uh, one, one of the players that played in it. But, yeah, it is one of those things. And it makes me think it's a shame in the sense that it had to come at the first overseas one for ages. But then by the same token, we have so many amazing finals, don't we? So many sort of like gripping late night ones. It perhaps had, you know, it's a realistic thing that they're, they're not all like that type thing. But you're right. It, it was a shame that it was over sort of by half seven. You know, you want to find it going on to nine, 10, 11, you know, for television, for the crowd there, for everything. But we got a little bit of a Goff's question to trail it for you later, Neil, so you can talk a little bit more about that great venue of the year. But thinking about the, just dot the I's and cross the T's a little bit towards the, the closing stages of the of the uh, the German Masters, obviously want to focus on you here, Neil. We saw some, you know, cracking matches. You mentioned... Uh, at Yanbing Tao, Mark Selby won. Well, in the quarterfinals, we saw uh, Zhao Zingtong beating Judd Trump 5-1. Uh, Ricky Walden seeing off Kyron Wilson 5-1. It was Mark Allen 5, Fang Zhengzhi 0, and Yanbing Tao 5, Ryan Day 4. And then the semi-finals, well, Zhao Zingtong 6, Ricky Walden uh, 3. But that was a, one of those classic ones where it was a real turning point. Walden had a big chance to go 4-1 up there. 
the match totally turned around and then Yan Bingtao at six, Mark Allen four. It's funny because it, it, you've been there, I know, I'm sure, Neil, when you were playing and you've seen it so many times, you think, how can a match turn on one ball? But it can, can't it? One pot, one missed ball and everything can kind of turn. Well, I mean, I think that something happened quite unusual in that match with Walden and, and uh, Zhao Jintong because I'm sure Ricky Walden had a green that rolled off. He was going to go 4-1 up, wasn't he? He was 3-1 up, looking like 4-1 up. Um, Joe Johnson said in commentary he hadn't got on the green quite right and he was absolutely bang on because he ended up missing it. But I'm sure that that ball actually rolled off, went from left to right as we were watching. And you don't, you don't hear of that very often at this level, especially on a, a shot like that. It, it just seemed to roll off. And as a consequence, Jintong cleared up and, and it was a completely different game after that. Now, at 4-1, I'm not saying Walden would have won, but he was in a very good position. It just turned everything. So these are the moments you get. I think Ricky was very unlucky. He's an interesting one, Walden, because he's actually been so consistent this season. He's got himself into the Players' Championship with a chance of getting in the Tour Championship, but he's never really looked like winning anything. He's been very consistent, so it's good to see him back. But you know, that was the game, really, if Xiao Jintong was going to lose. I think if you go back, Certainly earlier in this season, in the last couple of years, he would have lost that match. But he's found ways of winning. And he actually, despite not playing at his best, he finished pretty powerfully in that match with a couple of frame-winning breaks at the end. So he, he turned it all around. And, um, and that was the reason he was in the final. Uh, as far as Bing Tao, he just followed up good results the day before against, as you say, Ryan Day and uh, Mark Selby with that good win against Mark Allen. And uh, that, that could have easily gone to the side as well, if you remember. There was a chance Mark Allen, he got the yeah. snooker and then... Mr. Pink to the middle. He's playing better, which is good to see after his problems recently. You know, but, uh, you know, the two finalists were the two best players on the week. I think anyone would, um, well, I don't know, anyone could argue with that, really. I think Walden's a really interesting story this season because he's obviously, when he was at his best, he was a genuine contender and won ranking titles. And so to have him back in the mix, plus these two that we've just been talking about, there seems to be as many genuine contenders as there have been for a while. Yeah, it's good to see Ricky back playing well. You know, I mean, he's, he's not that old in super terms. I mean, he'd be 40 in November. So, you know, he, he's not an old player by any means, but he has disappeared off the radar. People speak about the fact he's had a few problems with his back and all of that. I don't know. He, he doesn't make a lot of all that. Um, I don't know why he struggled. I, I don't think he's the most confident bloke in the world, personally. I, you know, I've seen him and... He's a really lovely lad, but he's almost a bit too nice and, and not he doesn't strike me as someone with that, that killer instinct you need. But it's great to see him back playing well because he's been a bit on the missing list. So, um, yeah, it's a bit like his career. And, and you look at Barry Hawkins, who's done more, but he, you know, he's also in the, um, the Players' Championship, almost crept in unnoticed because uh, <laughs> there he comes in at number 16 again and... Uh, these are the sort of players that have been consistent without looking like winning anything. But as far as Walden's concerned, I think it's good news. Indeed. I hope Barry Hawkins didn't book anything for that week because going into the Germany looked like he had no hope of hanging on to that last spot. <laughs> yeah, no, he'll be there. He'll be there. And he's, he's uh, <laughs> interestingly, you know, he, he probably fancies going a good chance against Xiao Jintong because, you know, as we saw, Jintong played in the World Grand Prix straight after he won the UK. He lost to Martin Gould. There's no guarantee he'll follow it up next week, is there? We, we think he will. We think he's a great player, but he's going to turn up, you know, Wolverhampton, place he's probably never been to in his life. <laughs> and everyone's going to expect him to turn it on on the snooker table, but it doesn't always work that way. So I'm not ruling out that he'll just 
put it this way, as good as he is, players like him or anyone else can't win every week. You're going to get good results amongst bad because, as we know, only one player goes home with the, with the trophy. All the others have been beaten. So uh, I, I'll be interested to see how he follows up this great stuff that he's playing. He's playing out of his skin at the moment. So I, I almost hope to see him recreate that next week. Mm. Well, you teed it up very nicely uh, uh, for the Players' Championship, Neil. We've actually, this is such a busy time of the season. Actually, a Championship League action to come before then. And what players are in that, actually? With Group 7 coming on Tuesday and Wednesday. Ronnie O'Sullivan, John Higgins, Kyron Wilson, Ding Junwee, Ricky Walden, Martin Gould and Ali Carter. I make it five out of seven of those have been in World Finals. Then we've got the winners group of that coming on Thursday and Friday. Uh, with the winner of that Group 7 joining Graham Dot, Stuart Bingham, Zhao Zingtong, Scott Donaldson, Yan Bingtao and Liang Wenbo uh, in the final group. But then the Players' Championship, what a special event that is, of course. It's the 16 on the one-year list. And we do have the schedule out, actually. So uh, let me give you that quickly. Next Monday, we've got Neil Robertson against Kyron Wilson and Mark Williams against uh, Gary Wilson. That's from 7pm next Monday night. Then next Tuesday in the afternoon, Zhao Zingtong against Barry Hawkins and Yan Bingtao against David Gilbert. And then Tuesday night, what a match. Ronnie O'Sullivan against Judd Trump, along with Mark Allen against Ricky Walden. And then next Wednesday, February the 9th, John Higgins against Hussein Bafai and Luca Purcell against Jimmy Robertson. Neil, you obviously work at so many of these big tournaments. But this ITV series, this Kazoo series, I mean... It's just been a brilliant concept. Nick from golf, of course. Barry Herman will admit that. Taken from another sport, nothing wrong with doing that. It's been a great success, hasn't it? It's a great idea, isn't it? I think um, current form means a lot. And I think it's also his way of luring people into playing in everything. I know that a lot of the top players wouldn't want to miss out on it. I know that Mark Selby, unfortunately for him, has just missed out by one place. Yeah. Um, so even as world champion, you don't get sort of put straight into a draw. Uh, last year's winner wasn't going to get put into it just for the fact that he won it last year. They've got to earn their right every time. It makes it an intriguing event, I think. There was one or two players in there that you might not have expected. You know, I'm going to say Jimmy Robertson is a little bit of a surprising player, but you, you're in there because you've got the points and that's what he's done. Um, it's going to be absolutely terrific. I have to say that the draw, the way it's worked out with that third quarter is, is absolutely... A nightmare with O'Sullivan playing Trump and, and Kyron Wilson playing Neil Robinson. All the top players in the world are in the same little section. There's no room to manoeuvre in that part. Yeah, and it, obviously it's 16 players, but it's off a different ranking list. But it's got the Masters kind of feel of every match could be a final. Even the ones with the players that have sort of come in a bit unexpectedly, like Higgins against Vafai is a very tasty little match in the first round. And Gilbert seems to be playing Jan every other week at the minute, but another great game. So, yeah. Lots to look forward to. I know, and, and there is the chance of uh, Zhao Jintong, the uh, Yan Bingtao matching round two again. So we'll see how that uh, pans out if it does. I mean, Vafai is, is the success story, isn't it? The fact that he won the shootout, that gets you in so much now. I mean, why would you miss out on playing in that? Uh, obviously, he had different reasons why he might miss it because he had a bereavement in his family. His grandmother passed away very sadly. But um, for anyone else who's in his position in the rankings, you wouldn't miss out on the shootout unless you had to. Um, because of the spin-offs, which he's already finding out, being the champion of champions, he's, you know, he's in the players' championship playing John Higgins. It's dream come true for for a man that really all he's ever wanted to do is play snooker, and obviously 
with the visa problems he's had, it's been denied of him. But you know, that's a great occasion for him to play John Higgins. So that that's going to be good. Uh, it, it is a terrific event. It's and of course the Tour Championship is uh, well, it's it's just before the World Championships now with with, with no Chinese event, long matches. To, to call it an appetizer for the Worlds is a little bit unfair to that tournament. But it's a uh, you know to be in the eight players on the one year list means you've had a blooming good season. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, two two terrific events to look forward to there. And we, uh, of course, the Players' Championship uh, live on ITV at four in the UK. It must be too UK centric, of course. You'll be in Eurosport, as I understand it, in other parts of Europe and available on Matchroom Live and Facebook. They do tell us now that wherever you are in the world, you can watch snooker. That's pretty much the guarantee. So, and you must know that from some of the correspondence you get in, Neil. I mean, you know, when you're, you're on various channels, you get people writing from all over the place, don't you, like we do? <laughs> I'd quite like to, if, if I've got a moment at the end of a, a frame or after an ad break on Eurosport, I'd like to ask where in the world you're watching from. Let us know who you think is going to win all this stuff. And it's quite amazing. We had um, messages from all parts of the world, you know, like uh, un unusual places. I mean, a few people still watching Iceland, which is great because for a time that was a place where there was quite a, some good snooker players. Christian Helgerson was there. And just, just sort of places that... Um, Either I've never been in snooker um, environments or less so now. A lot of Canadians still watch snooker, which is nice. They've got no players anymore, it seems, or any none of any real note. And uh, it's just nice to think that when you're when you're speaking about snooker and people are watching it, they're not just watching it from sort of any, anywhere in the UK. Those days are gone now. It's a it's a global sport, it, you know. It really is. And um, you know, to think we've got an Iranian ranking tournament winner now. Is quite something in itself, isn't it? It's uh, it's what we need. I think we've had it too easy for too long in the UK. You know, we've had all these great players, but um, there's a whole bigger world out there, isn't it? And uh, I, I like to think that snooker, maybe the sort of craze that we had in snooker in the 80s and 90s when it was all new to people over here and we loved it, that sort of emotion and that sort of um, feeling of how much they are fascinated by the game is just coming to other parts of the world. Yeah, no good way of saying it. Well, Neil, we are now going to uh, turn our attention a lot more to you, if that's all right, sir, because um, we, we, we've dealt with everything going on the table, but we'd like to take a little bit down memory lane, um, but not, not forever. We'll come back to the present day as well. But, you, you know, the, the first thing I want to sort of ask you or, or think about is people will reflect back on your playing days, but actually your association with snooker predates that, doesn't it, because of your dad? I mean, you were steeped in it from a very young age, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, my dad, uh, he was um, a leading amateur player. Um, I mean, he turned professional, but it was always, it was a bit late in the day, really, for, for many of those guys of that sort of era, because they were good amateurs, and they were probably better in an earlier point in their life than at the time uh, when Snooker opened up. But, um, I mean, I, I've known the likes of uh, Terry Griffiths, the late Willie Thorne, John Virgo, since I was about 11 or 12 years of age. So I'm a little bit different to those. I could go back almost. I, I think I knew Steve Davis before Barry Hearn knew him because my dad played <laughs> Steve Davis in a, in a, in a match in um, Plumstead Working Men's Club going back to the mid-70s. So <laughs> I've known all these guys for so long. So I was always a little kid that was following my dad around that ended up playing the game. And uh, 
So I, I just go back quite a long way. And it, snooker's been you know, a huge part of my life all the way through. And I, clearly, without my dad's involvement, I would never have even got into the game. Um, and um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's great. I mean, my dad has played a huge part of my life. He's still, he's still going strong. He's, he's 82. He's had quite a few problems these days. And he doesn't, he's not able to play snooker anymore or anything like that. But, um, you know, he still follows it on a, a daily basis. So, yeah, I, I'm kind of, I've always been in, in the game. And uh, I can remember the first time I ever picked up a cue, which was in Greenford Conservative Club. Uh, and I just you know, didn't even know how to hold the cue or anything like that. And, and to be honest, I was quite a, a late developer because I played in all the, the, as they used to call it, in the boys, the, the British Boys Championship London section. Um, I think girls could play in it in those days, but they called it the Boys Championship anyway. That was the name that was given. And I, you know, I, it's only when I got to 16, I was able to win the London section and, and uh, or 15. And, um, you know, in playing play in, uh, in junior events, the first time I ever met John Parrott was in the finals of the, um, the British Boys Championship. He'd won the Northern section. As I say, I'd won the London area. Um, but I was quite a late developer. There was a lot of good London um, players who were ahead of me for quite some time. But at the age of about 15, it all eventually just came together, really. I didn't, I wasn't a natural like some were, but through hard work, I kind of um, improved quite a lot. And um, kind of that's where it all started for me, really. So I'm always fascinated by you guys who are amazing at certain sports. So, so the first time you ever played, you say you weren't a natural, but were you still, sort of, did you have like an obvious, were you adapted it to an extent? Remember we had Rianne Evans on here and she said the first time she ever played, she made a 20 odd, which is incredible to me. I would say no. I, in my case, no. <laughs> it took me a while. I think um, I'd played for a few months and um, my dad said, if you get, if you can ever make a 50 break, I'll give you five pounds. And I did eventually make one uh, in Ron Gross's pub in Neesden at the age of about, I suppose, 13, 12 or 13. Um, and it took me a little while to get to the century. You know, I made, I think my first century would have been at the age of something like 14. I know that sounds young, but when you think of what the likes of Judd Trump and probably <laughs> Sullivan were doing at that age, yeah. it's, it's not that great, really. So, it, as I say, it came a little bit late to me. And uh, I, I was surrounded by good players, which helps. I mean, um, you know, the, Jimmy White and Tony Mio, who was such a great player, uh, they were playing in the club, uh, in Ron Gross's club quite a lot. And then there was my dad and there was Patchy Fagan. Um, so a lot of very good players were around at that time. So it kind of rubs off on you. So even if you haven't got any sort of um, initially sort of obvious flair for a game, with hard work and, and practice and the desire, you can get there. And I think that there were, I was lucky in that regard. You know, I had all the right people around me. My dad told me what I was doing right and what I was doing wrong. And, you know, he sort of drove a hard bargain. Then Ron Gross himself, who Jimmy always talks about when we're working on Eurosport, he was a, a great player. He won three times English champion. And he, would, he was always a sticker for everything being done correctly. Like, you know, if you hit the balls too hard, he would tell you off if you threw the rest on the table or did something to disrespect the conditions he would he, he would give you a warning and tell you that if you did it again you'd be barred from the club you know it was all everything had to be done correctly which is actually perfectly how it should be isn't it you don't want people mm. just coming in and just chucking everything about and not really um not really sort of treating the game with the respect it deserves so i came from a tough school in that regard and i think that's how it should be that's how things should be so uh yeah, 
I, I was I was lucky. A lot of a lot of uh, things I, I saw, a lot of people I saw playing. Uh, you know, I was able to watch really good players all the way through. So that helped I me. Mean, Patsy Fagan was such a great player mm. when he first came on the scene until he got the problem with the rest. You know, he he was such a terrific player that um, probably his career should have been even better than it was. He won the UK Championship, as we know. But he was around when I was growing up and uh, you could learn something just by watching these people. Did, did your dad actively want you to be a snooker player? Like he pushed you or was it more relaxed if you're good at it and you want to do it type thing? No, he never pushed me. Um, he never pushed me at all. He, he always encouraged me, and but I think he knew straight away that's what I wanted to do. You know, I mean, I would always, um, I, I would, I went to school, um, except for I seemed to sometimes not be at school Masters week when it was at the conference centre. For some reason, I, I used to be not too well that week. But I always <laughs> at the Masters. That was the one week of the year when I, he didn't say a lot. He didn't stop me coming. I used to watch all those events. I used to be at the conference centre watching those. But other than that, I went to school and uh, did everything like that. And um, I, I, there was a period of time when I was only playing sometimes in the evening. If I could get to the club after after school, um, I got to the final of the British Junior. Uh, sorry, the uh, sorry, the beg your pardon. It was the World Junior Championship in the Isle of Wight, which I lost to Terry Whitford. And I was only playing basically at weekends at that point. And um, that's when Ron Gross said, "Look, you know, we, we maybe you should." Um, when you finish school, you know, when it all ends and uh, do some work in the evenings in my club and I'll give you free practice. So from, from that position, I, I improved very quickly because I was always, uh, I was always going to take up the opportunity of, of, uh, of playing snooker if I could, uh, as often as I could when I left school. So did you, did you ever have a job other than snooker? Is it just been snooker forever? No, I had a job. I, I worked in a, in Shepherd's Bush, in an insurance uh, office, um, on the site where Westfield is now, the, the shopping centre. That I, I went there for about nine months, and uh, I was basically doing death values and surrender values in a, in a calculating those. And right. I, I soon realised that I wanted to play snooker. You know, that was my <laughs> that was where I wanted to be. It, it, you know, it was quite. I mean, I I didn't dislike the job that much, but I knew what I wanted to do. So. Um, I think that was the best thing that could happen to me. Just find out what it's like not to have, um, uh, sort of, to have a job and and uh, and not to be able to play snooker all the time because I just wanted to be playing. So, yeah, as soon as soon as I got the opportunity to play on a full time basis, having left school and sort of a little dalliance with that couple work, it was probably a good thing for me. <laughs> um, what were those early days like as a pro when you first sort of went into the full time ranks, Neil? It, was was it very exciting times? Was it nerve wracking times? How do you reflect on it? <clears throat> well, I think, that, to be honest, the early rounds, the, the early years, uh, there were some pretty average players in the ranks, and you could you could probably look at a draw and think, well, "I'm going to get through a few matches." I mean, I got to the Crucible the first year, um, and I, I beat you know a couple of good players, but but no one who was an outstanding player to get through. I think my last match to qualify for the Crucible, I played somebody who had, was previously considered a good player. Jim Meadowcroft was no longer with us, well-known commentator. <clears throat> but I remember one thing I remember about playing him was I led him after the afternoon session. I'd already beaten him in the UK qualifiers. And this was like, a, at the time, it considered a big match for me. I let him go into the evening session quite heavily. And 
I'd sort of got the feeling that he was going to come out in the evening and and, uh, and give me more of a game and come back strongly at me. But he actually turned up late. So he docked the first frame in the evening. I think <laughs> I was seven two up. And I expected this big backlash at night. You know, I've got to get in the cruise, but I expected to come out all guns blazing. He didn't even turn up on time. So right. I was even further in front before I hit a ball. So that was kind of handy. So that got me to the crucible in my first year. So um, I would say that qualifying then was a lot easier than it is now. Let's be honest. There's some very difficult draws you could have. And anyone that gets through those three or four matches, whatever it might be now to get to the crucible, is going to have it a little bit tougher. Because I think players like me, this is before the class of 92 by an awful long way, as we know. Players like, like myself and John Parra and a few other, Dean, Dean Reynolds, a good player, Dino came. We were all a little bit better than the sort of the, the standard required just to be a professional. Not necessarily at the top level, but we were already sort of halfway up the list, I think, before we hit a ball because there were some players that were past their best, let's be honest. And no names to need to be mentioned. Um, it's almost the same as when I was coming to my retirement, you know, people probably looked at me in the same way, you know, that uh, players that were coming through, but uh, it was tough, but there were some good players around, but I think the whole structure then, you had a, a better chance of coming through the ranks more quickly than you might do now. Mm. And then straight in, <laughs> first, uh, first go at the Crucible, you couldn't get more of a blockbuster tie against Alex Higgins. How, how nervous were you going into that? Well, it wasn't too bad. I, I mean, I, I, did, I don't think there was a lot of pressure on me. Um, I remember it was a strange match because, if I'm not mistaken, we started in the evening and finished the next morning. There was no real uh, turnaround. And I think I was 5-4 down going into the next session. But by the time I got back to the hotel, it's time to get up and play. So I think that helped me. I didn't have time to uh, think about what may or may not happen. And in the morning, I came out and won, played brilliantly and um, only won 10-9. And, and that was that. So it was almost like, understand what that meant. A lot of, there was a lot of publicity, a lot of um, people wanted to take pictures of me and my family and everything. And it was a big deal, you know, to beat Alex, who took it well, I must say. You know, he was very, very gracious in defeat. And I've said this before, the interesting thing about that year was I ended up playing Doug Mount during the next round and, and he beat me. But Alex Higgins was commentating for the BBC that year. People oh. can't remember that, that, but that, that was the one year that he he commentated. He got knocked out by me. And I can remember one thing. When I was playing Doug, I kept looking up at the commentary box. And, and Alex had been smoking in there all night. I don't know who he was commentating with. But there was this big blue sort of smog in the commentary box. You couldn't hardly see who was in there. It seemed unthinkable now anyone would be doing that. And then you'd see and open the door and the, the session ended and all the smoke would come pouring out. I felt a bit sorry for the, the other commentator who may have well also have been smoking. But uh, but Alex was, um, yeah, that was my first year beating Alex. And it was, um, I mean, I've got a lot of spin-offs of that, a lot of exhibition work and all of that sort of stuff to play Alex uh, after it. Um, in sort of, he'd had a lot of bookings, but they seemed to add me onto those. So, it was a long-standing thing. I got to know him quite well. But, um, yeah, I mean, again, I'd been to the Crucible before and not to play. I mean, in 1979, I was there. I watched um, John Virgo, who had been playing in London at the time. I watched quite a lot of him playing that year when he got beaten in the semi-finals. So I'd experienced the Crucible um, already, you know, and what it was all about. So it wasn't completely new to me. But, um, it, it, what I, what, you know, I had some experience of being there, which helped really, because it's a tiny little place, as we all know. And um, it helps to think that you might have even been there before. 
what was it like playing Alex Higgins? You, with someone like Steve, you know, we'll never know. Ask me immortals, of course, even about that. But I always struck me, he, he was in, incredibly hard to sort of play against because of his nat- just sheer brilliance. But with Higgins, he was sort of unpredictable. So there was that kind of element of you never know what was around the corner. Did, did that affect you as an opponent or did you just say no? eyes on the table, don't worry too much about him type thing. I think, you know, I, I don't think I was too concerned. I think as you get older, things can worry you more, don't they? You, you get more nervous about everything. You kind of live in fear as you get older. But at the time, I didn't really mind. I just thought, well, I'm playing Alex Higgins. I just want to be here. And then that's a great feeling to be to be in where you, you don't really think about winning or losing. You just enjoy the moment. And... Um, as I say, when the chance came to beat him, I was able to do it. It was a big thing for me because, as I say, I was always the, the kid who was hanging around, sort of watching his dad play all those years. And I think maybe one or two of the other guys thought, well, hang on, this, this fellow's not a bad player, as it turns out. Because playing Higgins was quite hostile. Mm. You know, and I noticed it in la- later years. I mean, I played him in the, at Goffs, which was an experience. But um, mm. I think at that stage of my career, I was really up for none. It didn't seem to um, phase me playing him. You know, I didn't feel under any pressure whatsoever. Did that sink in quite quickly? You say all the publicity, but that must have felt like, oh, I've, I've made it quite quickly or I'm on my way to making it quite quickly. Yeah, possibly so. I mean, I think, I think uh, it, it dawned on me afterwards that there was a lot of media attention then. I mean, obviously... The, the snooker press room now is, is, a, is an interesting place to be. But even then, there was an awful lot more. There was a load of journalists there. I had lots of pictures taken. It was it was something that, like, anything that happened in snooker in the mid-'80s was on the news the next day or in the in the paper the next day. And these days, it's not so easy to get the headlines, understandably, really. It's, it's a different world we live in. But uh, snooker was a big deal, wasn't it? So something like that was considered... Something, I mean, I've got, you know, I turned up for the next match. I had loads of fan mail. I had an old lady who sent five pounds in an envelope for me because she didn't like Alex. Um, <laughs> she sent me five pounds to spend. Spend it how you like. You've knocked Alex. You can say, you've made my day. You're my favourite player. The next letter I'd open. And the next letter I'd open would say, you've ruined my, my year. How dare you beat Alex? So, you know, realise that you get this, the, the flip side to everything, really. So yeah, I mean, it was uh, yeah, it was, it was a big thing for me, big thing at the time. I mean, we obviously, you know, hear about the eighties a lot. Gods of snooker on recently. I mean, as someone at the very heart of it, was it as exciting as that? I mean, I've heard people say we over romanticised it a bit, and well, that's hardly a crime. You do romanticise about you know nice happy memories often, but what was it extraordinary type thing? Because you guys were such big stars, weren't you? Well, I, I, I'd like to say I was um, sort of uh, not, not a big star like the others. I think I was um, sort of uh, hanging by their coattails a little bit and I was involved <laughs> in it, but I never felt I was one of the big stars of that era, really. I mean, I, I looked at you know, Kirk Stevens, who <clears throat> I, I saw play that year, or I'd, I'd met a few times before. He was a big star, and obviously Jimmy White and... and uh, Steve Davis, all these people were, were still there. And also you had the different, the previous brigade still going on. Cliff was still around and players like that. And, and Ray Reardon had, had, had just about 
stopped playing at the Crucible. So there was all kinds of different sort of levels to it. There was people like Jimmy White, who was everyone was interested in. I knew Jimmy from from old, so I think I was lucky to be involved. Now I wouldn't I wouldn't say I was in that category. I was a bit not really interested in the limelight, and I wasn't as popular a player as some. It's just the way things go. But that didn't bother me really. I didn't want to be one of those sort of people anyway. You know, I didn't necessarily revel in the limelight of it all, um, and I wasn't uh, so interesting a player to watch as those, which which is a part of it. You know, they people either like you or they hate you, and. Uh, <laughs> But somewhere I was fit in between the two, really, if it's possible. I think you're a bit <laughs> self-deprecating, to be honest. <laughs> to me, I'm not just saying it, but everyone that was part of snooker then, you know, yeah, I know what you mean, Jimmy and Alex Higgins, but, you know, Dean Reynolds, yourself, Mike Hallett, I think everyone was part of that great circus. But anyway, <laughs> I know what you're saying. Sorry yeah, I, feel, I feel lucky to have been involved. Don't get me wrong, I, you know, I think I was lucky to be playing snooker in that era because it, it was a big deal. I mean, we haven't mentioned Tony Knowles, what a big star he was, you know, and yeah. uh, how, how popular he was. So, yeah, it was, um, it, look, it was a great time, but you're also right to say that we all think things were better back then. I mean, you know, I follow football now, but, you know, I can remember all the FA Cup finals in the 70s and 80s very vividly, but I can't remember too many recent ones. You know, it, that's all about the nostalgia of life, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, certainly playing-wise, you you were right there. That's this. I've got your results up here, and your season for eighty six, eighty seven, which is remarkably consistent. Um, did some did something just click then, or were you just at the peak of your powers? Yeah, I think so. I had a good year that year. I, I the year um, that was. Um, I mean, I'd won my first ranking event that year. Well, only ranking event actually, but I beat Cliff Thorburn in the final of the international, and then. I got to the UK final, which I probably could have done better in that final. Lost to Steve. I, I changed my tip halfway through the final. I, I mean, I know that people never used to speak about that kind of thing, but I played brilliantly all week. And looking back, I, I thought my tip had gone too hard against Steve. And, you know, I, you see players doing that now. I think, why do they do it? But I remember doing it myself. And Steve, Steve was, was too good for me and he beat me quite comfortably in that final. Um, and then I had my, probably the, the biggest disappointment for me that season was leading in the, overnight in the British Open final to um, Jimmy White. I'd been playing probably my best snooker of all that week. And uh, on the last day, I just didn't play well. I, I don't know. We had a little bit of a change of routine. It was always me and my dad. And then there was other members of the family turned up on the last day. And I found that the pressure got to me and Jimmy beat me anyway. So that was that. And um and then I had the World Championships, you know, and uh, yeah, after that, I have to say a few things happened to me that made me slightly, you know, not quite look forward to it. You know, I had a few off the table things going on and then I lost my form a little bit. You know, I dropped down like a stone. I went down from number three in the world to net world number 20. So the next year was a bit of a nightmare for me. Um, but I would say that then I got myself back and I got myself back into the top flight. I got up to... I think world number five and world number six the next couple of years. So I think in some ways I was a better player then in that second coming towards the late 80s, about 1990, than I was before because I think I was more rounded a player. I'd, I'd had the disappointments of losing. I think I'd um, become just a better all-round player, really. But you've got to accept the ups and downs of it all. And um, I kind of did, really. I had to. I had no choice. You know, the, I didn't always have a great relationship with the press then. I had a couple of things, as I say, uh, left me a little dis, dis, um, disillusioned with the game, but 
I'm not the only one. Listen, look at all the things that happen to people now. It's just, it's all part of it. I have a little bit of sympathy for the players who, whose sort of private life get a little bit dragged into the open because it's all not really what you signed up to when you started playing the game. You only want to be a snooker player. But that's the nature of it all. You know, that's the nature of it all. And uh, I have no regrets of anything, really. Mm. Uh, just to go back to that International Open you, you mentioned, Neil, I had a look, look through your run, actually. I mean, this is... Yeah, I mean, talk about memory lane and yesteryear. You beat Graham Miles... You beat your dad, Jeff. Correct me if I'm wrong here. I went through it a couple of times. I'm pretty sure. You beat Ken Owers, Dean Reynolds, <laughs> Eugene yeah. Hughes, and then Cliff in the final. I mean, that is, you know, what a, what a wonderful collection of name, names there. I mean, that was, a, that was a special moment, wasn't it, though, to get that first big tournament win? I mean, to take us back to that final and your feelings on that, on that day, that night. Yeah, no, it, well, it, it was interesting. Those ITV finals then were over three sessions, over two days. And um, they always finished on the Sunday afternoon. And, and I remember playing Cliff. I'd actually, I don't think I missed a long ball in that match. I did play well. Uh, but my memory of that match, the first session, because Cliff, as you mentioned, the draw I had, and then, you know, my dad um, was, was in there and a few players that, you know, uh, sort of, maybe I was expected to beat. I think the draw opened up for me with the sound of it. And since you mentioned those names again, um, but um, <laughs> playing, playing Cliff was a tough old uh, game for me. But I remember in, in the afternoon session of the match with Cliff, he wasn't happy with the condition. He said, the, the balls are absolutely used. The balls are not reacting. And I noticed that they were playing badly. And I don't know what he is. I'm going to take these balls off the table in the mid interval and put them in the sink. I thought he was joking. <laughs> so he took all the balls off the table I don't think he even asked the referee. And he put them all, <laughs> emptied them all into a sink and, and give them a good old scrub. And then said to the referee, this is, this is what you should have been doing already. This is what you needed to do. These balls are not clean. And he scrubbed them all and then dried them all off like he was doing the washing up. <laughs> and then put them back, they, the referee put them back on the table and they were brilliant. The balls were flying around the table. So I don't know what, <laughs> what had happened and how he was allowed to do all that or not. That's my memory of the first day. I just remember the second afternoon of that match. I, um, just um, my long game was fantastic. I remember hardly missing anything at long range. Cliff admitted to that, and um, and that was it. Yeah, you know, um, I had a few friends there. It was a great, a great day for me. Um, uh, you know, to to sort of to win something big. And, and as I say, it was all live. It was all an ITV event. It was strange that they had this this afternoon session, which started, I think, about two o'clock or something. It went all the way through the afternoon until about six o'clock, all live on ITV. There was no ITV4 in those days, like a terrestrial channel. Yeah. And snooker was just a really big deal, you know, and um, yeah, that, was a, that was a big win for me. I mean, yeah. really... no, go on, Nick. I mean, millions would watch those finals, wouldn't they? You know, um, yeah. th that's the point, you know, that, that less, less football on there those days. So the, the attention would be huge on those finals. And even though we talk about the biggest events and you, you know, they all had a sort of cachet then, didn't they? Because they were all live on big telly. It's interesting you say that, you know, you might have summed up the reason why it was other sports like snooker were so popular. Less football is absolutely right. I mean, we only used to see um, the FA Cup final live, um, the European Cup as it's called then and the, Cup with this cup, we hardly saw a live game other than that, did we? So, 
that there was no football to speak of that you could you could watch live. So snooker was one of the few sports that you could see, and um, I think you know the game thrived as a consequence of that. So yeah, it was a big deal, and uh, yeah, there, there were great times to be a snooker player. Yeah, and then you mentioned sort of you drifted away a bit and then came back, which I always think is almost more impressive than people's first rise up. But then the Scottish Masters in 1992, was that almost as sort of rewarding or more rewarding, having sort of drifted back and come back? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I think what happened to me was I dropped out the 16 um, and I can remember being at the Crucible and, I had to, and I'd played a guy from Wales called Wayne Jones, who had played in the first round the year before. And beat, but the next year, I had to beat Wayne Jones to um, stay in the top 16, basically. And I was in terrible form. My game wasn't up to much. And I remember I was 3-1 down in that match. And I was with my dad in the dressing room. And I said, oh, I'm under pressure here. I'm struggling. It was basically a long way to go. Looking back now, there was no need to panic. But I remember getting so angry, I sort of managed to break the window in the dressing room at the Crucible. And all the glass went flying down. I don't know if you know where the dressing rooms are at the Crucible. Nothing's yeah. changed. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't mean to do it, but I think I just pushed the curtain in anger, and the window smashed, and all the shards of glass went down onto the street. And I had to tell <laughs> the tournament director that um, it was an accident. I'd lent on it, you know, lent on the glass. And my dad said, "What the hell are you doing?" So, well, I didn't. I don't know. I just completely. Needs to say, I lost that match, so I dropped out the sixteen, and um, dropped down the rankings. So I had a couple of years out of that, and then I got back, and then yeah, the Scottish Masters was a good win for me. I mean, I, I don't know. I remember. Funny enough, I saw Gary Wilkinson, the man I beat in the final, the other day at the, the Masters, because he works for World Snooker now. And yeah. um, he did me a favour, I think, because he beat Stephen Hendry in the semi-finals. I'm not sure I'd have beaten Stephen. So I, <laughs> he did me or himself a big favour of beating him. And um, and I took, took advantage of that. But I think I went into that tournament with not great expectations of winning it. And uh, sometimes that was the best way. I, I actually wasn't that too well that week. I'd been feeling unwell. and. Um, um, sort of didn't really expect a great deal. And I just won pop black as well at that time about a few weeks before. So I started that season quite well. Hmm. I mean, people talk about sometimes that, you know, Neil Foles just won one ranking event. I think that's a little bit unfair, really, because you actually won quite a lot of tournaments, really. I mean, you mentioned, you know, you won pop black, you, you, you won, as Phil mentioned, the Scottish Masters, you won the Dubai Masters as well. You won the Pontins Professional. So I think the idea that, you know, I mean, you'll be able to tell us much more whether you think you achieved what you should have achieved in the game or not. But I think sometimes it's painted as old Neil didn't win much. You, you put a few trophies in the cabinet, really. Yeah, I, look, I won a few things, but I, I don't think I was... A, I think I was um, a, a very good player. I was never a great player. I think I think what I, my technique wasn't quite up to some of the other players around. And... Um, I think you know you can have a crisis of confidence, and and when your technique isn't isn't great, you struggle to get out of it. So I was searching for different ways to get my game together, and um, yeah, I, I did okay. Although I I don't consider myself one of the great players of that era. I mean, I don't. I mean, now I'm lucky enough to work in it, as you know, in the media and 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 the other side of it. I, I try not to ever talk greatly about my um my own playing days because I think they're okay. But that's that's about it, really. But I mean, I. I think I served my years in the game and I know the game quite well. So um, I just know that um, what happened with my my game is that 
I remember, I'm funny enough, I remember John Parrott in one of his, in a book, in his book, he was speaking about me. I remember reading it and I didn't actually buy the book, but I remember reading it somewhere. And he said that Neil's a great friend of mine, blah, 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 a good player. And he said, but his cue action where he cues, his cue goes underneath his body is a little bit hit or miss. And I remember hearing him say that and I think, you know, I think he's right. And um, at that point, I started thinking, I don't have the classic technique of one or two of the other guys. John had a great cue action himself. And obviously Steve and all these people, the people that cue in a straight line all the time. And you hear people speaking about it now, you've had Ronnie talking about cue actions. But if you've got some doubt as to your own cue action, as to the mechanics of it, if it's not working, um, it can play on your mind a little bit and you can become a little inconsistent. And I think that's what I was, even at that time, you know. And, I mean, this is a funny question, really, but loads of players in this situation. And obviously, when you had that great spell about 10 years, really, these quarters, semis, finals, winning things, and then you probably had another about 10 years of those being quite rare. What What's yeah. that like, transitioning from one to the other? No, it's not easy. I think um, what, what happened is you become quite used to playing in qualifiers. Um, and being quite a good player in those, you, you've gone down a little bit of a notch. People know you're not the player you were, but you, you've also, I found that I still could play pretty pretty well and occasionally I would make it to the latter stages of events, not that often. Um, it is a different, it's a different thing altogether. Strangely, in the early days or the days when I was doing well, I didn't like those qualifiers. I used to find that, um, you know, I didn't want to be back in that environment, the small cubicles, not much room around them and not many people watching. But then as my career changed a little bit, I almost quite enjoyed that environment, you know, and I was thinking, okay, well, I'm able to beat a lot of these guys now. Um, and then you get into a TV set situation and it'd be quite nerve wracking. And I'm not the only one to have said that. I know a lot of people that have, have found it difficult uh, to sort of play uh, on the main table when you haven't been used to it. And I think I got into that position. And I'd always made my mind up that I was never going to be one of these people that was going to have to try and requalify for it. And um, once I'd come to the point where I felt that my game was coming to, um, I wasn't the player I was, I was going to pack it in. But thinking about it, I mean, I packed in, I can remember the day, 30th of January 2003 was my last match. I lost in the World Championship qualifiers to uh, Leo Fernandez, who still plays quite well. You know, he beat me in that. And um, thinking about it, you know, I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't even 40 years of age then. Um, and like, that's not an age, but it felt like I was an old man in snookering terms. Whereas I think we've now discovered that that's not an old age in snooker. So maybe had the re regime been a little bit more like it is now, maybe a little bit more of a lifespan, but I'd had enough, you know, I'd already sort of had my sort of, um, uh, sort of uh, career in the game and I'd started to do other things. I'd already become a commentator then and doing other things. So, and I had no regrets, um, you know, when it was time to call it a day, I think. That was kind of where I was going next. Uh, as You've kind of answered it. Uh, say how, how gradual was it? Was it something you were thinking about for a while? And have you ever regretted uh, stopping when you did? Like even now when you watch the game and you, you see some of those guys into their 40s, maybe even 50s doing well. Do you ever think could have gone a bit longer or do you, do you still think, now nah, I made the right call then? I think so. I mean, for me, and Snooker's, you know, been in my blood from, as I say, from 12 years of age. But I have to be honest, without getting back into the past, 
I kind of fell out of love with the game a little bit about 1998. You know, my dad became embroiled in in all the you know he was he was all part of of, of world snooker and um there was there was um a lot of uh infighting in the game i think we all know about that anyone with a bit of history in the game will tell you that it was not a very pleasant environment actually because there was infighting there were people trying to take the game over that didn't own the game in the first place and and again this is not something that any of us talk about anymore but as i say my dad became chairman then he was no longer chairman so he'd been ousted a little bit and then, uh, you know, he didn't want to come to the matches. He used to come to watch me play. So I think a period of about four or five years from 1998 till about the time I retired, I'd fallen out of love with the game quite a lot. And I, I, I can even look at those those years and, and I don't remember necessarily watching all of the world championships that much. But I was still, um, well, I was doing a little bit of work elsewhere. I was doing a bit of broadcasting work and I'd already started commentating then. So... I, I mean, I was doing some stuff for Sky. So I, I just felt that I didn't really want to carry on playing. I wanted to be involved in the game. And I think that the minute I stopped playing, the day I stopped playing, I knew the queue wasn't going to come out anymore. Although I did actually play in the seniors one more year, a few years later, but that's a different story. I think I think I got um, enticed into that. I was in the pub and I got a call from Jason Ferguson. Um, it wasn't Jason France. It was Jason Ferguson said to me, do you want to play in the seniors one year? And I'd had a couple of drinks. And, yeah, okay. So I had a few a few weeks practice for that. But I think going back to when I retired, I think I knew that I'd had enough, really. And um, I've had no regrets. And you know, it was from that day on. I never had to worry about the queue action and and all of these these things that um, I'd been through about getting the queue through the ball and all that. Um, so then I started to enjoy the game because I could enjoy I could enjoy the game on behalf of all the people that still play it. And uh, it's kind of a it's given me a new lease of life, I think, in snooker. Now, the obvious transition now is into your media career, but I wanted to get one question in. Because uh, I've spoke to other people who've, who've hung up the queue properly and that it stays hung up, um, obviously competitively. But do you still go and enjoy a game of snooker in the club? Do you still like playing a little bit? No, uh, me and my dad, um, we used to have a game at Christmas every year, every Christmas Eve, but he's been in poor health for four or five years now, so my queue has not come out once. Um, and oh, I would. I'm not, I'll never say never. I, I may have a game at, at some point, but I haven't thought to do it for a long time now. And I think, I think there's certain players like that. I think that Terry Griffiths, when he packed up, he said he wouldn't play. I mean, Terry Griffiths actually packed up when he was still a leading player. If you remember, he, he, his story was remarkable. He still played it. He had a chance to qualify at the Crucible after his retirement because he he had to win one match. He was in the top 32. And he won that match against my good friend Alfie Burden and played at the Crucible after basically he'd retired. So he he gave up at the top of the tree. I was near the bottom of the tree by then. I was struggling. Let's be honest about it. Uh, one of the reasons I packed it in was because I was falling down the rankings. That's the main reason. It, it'd be easy to say that other, I'd give other reasons for that. But I was falling down the rankings and I wasn't prepared to uh, go and try and get back on the tour in a different way. Um, and I think Alan McManus, he's the same. I don't suppose he's going to carry on playing. I, I get the feeling he's not anyway. Um, he may have an about turn, but I think Alan is more determined than I am that, that he's, uh, you know, his days are up. And, and he finished it in, in a good um, place as well. You know, he was still quite a highly ranked player when he packed it in. So, uh, and then you get player, other players who and then start playing again. But I have no regrets. I, I'm happy with how things are. 
Well, of course, then we move on to your broadcasting there, which we know you so well for. I mean, you mentioned you started doing it for Sky. Uh, you, you seem to be very good at it very quickly. I mean, uh, while looking back at some of your playing days, actually, I mean, this is a bit of hindsight, but I've seen you chatting after certain matches when you were playing, and I can see the pundit already in you there, and that's like 30, 35 years ago, <laughs> talking about yourself. So I think you always kind of had it in you. Uh, did it was it always something when you towards the end of your playing days you, you thought you wanted to do or was it more by chance no I, I always looked at uh, towards the end of my playing career I looked at the people in the commentary box and thought well these these guys have got it easy haven't they, they you know that it's it's like they're talking about a sport they they enjoy and the minute they put the microphone down when that session ends and the players shake hands then it's all over they haven't got to take it home with them they've got no reason to worry about anything else but that session is over and I thought it sounded a good way of, of earning a living. And, and I did get a call from Sky. I'd been I'd not done any real... I think I did a day of commentary two or three years before with uh, Phil Yates and Jim White on one of the Sky events. And it was like three of us in the comms box. And to be honest, I was hopeless, I thought, that first go. And, they, and um, nothing came of it. But then um, Rory Hopkins, who was in charge at Sky at the time, he, he uh, got a fellow called Roger Wilkinson to ask me if he wanted to commentate on... Uh, one of the Scottish events that they covered, they did a lot of good, you know, people forget that Sky played a, quite a big part in snooker for, in that period. Um, and I was delighted to do it. Yeah, you know, I, enjoy, I joined Phil Yates, uh, Willie Thorne, Mike Hallett in doing comms for them, um, which was great. And they had a, a, a period of time where they were covering a few events. If you remember, there was, I think this, it was about the time when they had a, an interesting concept where they'd have one player wearing a blue shirt and the other player wearing a red shirt in the mm. matches. I forget what that was. The one with the highest ranked player had the red shirt against the player wearing the blue shirt. That was one of the Sky events. I think that's about when I started, mm. about 2000, early 2000s anyway. Making it look distinctive um, as possible sort of thing. Well, yeah, it's a funny old idea, but that, that's what I recall in the early events I did. Um, and then, of course, they packed in doing the... Uh, I think the last tour they did was uh, the one that Jimmy White beat Paul Hunter in the final of the Players' Championship, whatever it was called. Mm-hmm. For some reason, it finished on a Saturday and they they didn't get like, many viewers. It, it didn't even go on one of their sports channels. I think it, I think it was during the Masters. I think it was during the Masters' goal, something like that. Yeah, that's right. And it didn't get the, the viewing figures they wanted. So I thought, well, that's no more of that. And then Sky ended up doing the Premier League on a Thursday night and they asked me to be involved in that, which was great. And then I was... I did BBC after that as well. I, uh, Graham Fry uh, called me and asked me to do the BBC. So I felt like I was well and truly in the swing of it then. So, um, yeah, I mean, I've been very lucky to work with, you know, some great commentators and, um, you know, notably Clive at the beginning, Clive Everton, who sort of, another one with a very sort of very disciplined approach to it, which, which, um, which I think helped me, you know, helped me just to learn off, off of those has certainly helped me. I was going to say you've worked you've worked with for everything everyone really and with everyone over the last twenty years I guess um, you mentioned Clive there is he sort of the standout one you've worked with over that time Yeah that's right I mean um, you know you know, Clive Clive is, he was was great to work with you know he um, you knew that you knew the rules you know he was obviously the lead which is right I mean that's completely how it should be. Um, and but he would let you, uh, he'd always be in a position to, um, 
you know, to, to let you sort of do all the, the the obvious stuff, all the analysis, all the mid-frame stuff, and he would just butt in, and he would never over-speak Clive. I mean, it's the one thing with new commentary I've always noted that you do get a lot of stick occasionally on, on social media, and it's never because you don't say enough. It's always because you say too much, you know, why can't <laughs> they shut that folds up? He's doing, driving me mad, you know. Um, <laughs> and there is this sort of tendency, I think, for all of, this, all of us new commentators, I think almost all of us, to over-talk sometimes, say too many things when you don't need to, often because you're excited and you're loving the game, but you've got to let the game breathe. And, and um, like I say, no one's ever criticised me for not saying enough. It's always when you say too much. But working with Clive, he didn't used to waste words. I think Dave Hendon's on a very similar sort of level now. He only says what needs to be said and he adds to the pictures. That, that, we all know that's how it should be done. Hmm. Oh, well, most of us do anyway. You know, we all know that you're meant to add to the pictures and you're meant to just add a bit of colour to it, but because we're all snooker people at heart, we do occasionally get too excited and maybe say too much, but I am lucky to have worked with um, uh, a lot of very good people all the way. I mean, I've, I've been lucky enough to work with them all, really, and over the years since I've been involved, and uh, everyone I've worked with is slightly different, but it's been a great experience. Yeah, of course. And you're, and you're absolutely brilliant at doing it. Do, do you find it hard sometimes calling out players or calling out matches for being below standard or poor or someone not doing their job right? Or do you think, no, you've got, you've got to be disciplined. That's the job. Well, I don't know. I mean, it, it, uh, some people might say that. I mean, I, I, the other week I, there was a match involving Ronnie. And um, now he's not an example of someone that's below poor, I know. But I had two, two messages on Twitter. One said, you, you must absolutely love O'Sullivan. All you do is say all these things up. You know, you're always being kind to O'Sullivan, even when he's playing bad, you know, uh, does he pay your wages? He must do. And the next <laughs> message I got on the same night said, why do you hate O'Sullivan so much? <laughs> so that was from the same commentary. <laughs> They've come with two separate angles altogether. Um, as far, as far, <laughs> so you can't win, really. And, and someone the other day accused me of being a Mark Shelby hater. I couldn't be. I couldn't like anyone in the game more than my, uh, Mark Selby. What he's achieved, where he came from, you know, where he was at the start of his career. I couldn't admire him anyone more. So it, um, you can be accused of of um, a lot of things. I mean, look, if if someone plays um, no, if if someone misses the black off the spot, I'm not going to criticise him for that. They miss hundreds of those. If someone makes a, a poor judgment, I think it's worth mentioning. So, well, I don't know why. X, Y, Z player played that shot. Surely the better option would have been this. That's objective, I hope. Um, everyone's got their own way of doing things. But you wouldn't want to be overly critical. And I'm sure I have done that. But it wouldn't be intentional because I do remember how difficult the game is to play. Um, and I think that's the key. Hopefully, you know, I mean, I, I do think that, um, you know, there are occasions maybe when I've said slightly the wrong thing. Often I'll regret it. But, um, yeah. You just try and do what you think is right. I, I try to be unbiased. You know, I don't. I try not to get too involved with any players. I don't mix with them very much. So I try and keep it a little bit separate, which is the best I could do. I mean, I, I've got a couple of pals in the game, especially. But, you know, I try not to be um, sort of uh, too much in favour of those where possible. But I think we can all do better. <laughs> well, we're both big fans of your country work on here. I think you've got a great sort of mix of uh, you really make us laugh sometimes. Um, but as you say, call things out when it needs to be called out, and some great terms of phrase for doing so as well. Sometimes, sometimes a poor shot um, will I'll sort of be 
gasping at, but then I'll end up laughing at by whatever you, however you've described it. <laughs> well, um, I mean, I'll take that as a compliment. Oh, absolutely. It's meant to be, yeah. Um, you mentioned social media a couple of times then, and, uh, you know, everyone has to deal with it in whatever walk of life, really. Obviously, we'll get comments as journalists. You guys do. Can, can you imagine having to be a player in this era now, having to deal with the stuff that they get on social media? Yeah. It's insane, isn't it? Well, it is. And the worst thing you can say to a player is, you know, I've seen people sort of accuse players of not trying to win and all this sort of stuff. No, I mean, I think I think um, Sean Murphy seemed to have been driven off social media by people criticising him, you know, whether he was trying to say people were throwing matches. Absolutely terrible thing to say because these guys are not doing that. I mean, they're trying to they're trying to win. People are speaking through their pocket occasionally. People can be offensive. All these stuff, you know, this we all know what, Twitter is it's a it, it, it's a it's a bit of a cesspit at times, and um, it must be very difficult. You know, personal insults are, are, are not very nice either. But you know, that's what you're up against. I mean, I can understand it. I mean, I'm a massive cricket fan, right? and and you may or may not know that. But mm. Alistair Cook is someone I admire in cricket. One of the greatest opening batsmen in the last twenty years, and uh, he's retired now. He never ever engaged in social media. He stayed away from it all the way through. He's not on Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram, nothing during that career. And um, he may have missed out on certain things, but he certainly, he probably did the right thing, you know. And, and if you could be, I mean, I don't know what, what who in Snooker is like that. I think John Higgins might be the nearest. Mm. I don't think John Higgins on any social media as well. You know, he's had, um, he's been away from it all and he's probably got it made really because as much as I enjoy it, there were times, like you say, if you were a player of this game, it, it would be unpleasant. It'd be an unpleasant space to be in, wouldn't it? I used to like listening, uh, hearing about Cook, how between matches he'd just go back on his farm, wouldn't he? And just sort of yeah. retreat to the quietest life possible. I think people sort of credited that for his focus and how he could sort of uh, keep a clear mind when he was batting. Well, you, you wonder how any of us survived, really, before we even had mobile phones and social media, but we seem to Everyone seemed yeah. to manage quite well. Um, <laughs> yeah. We had other ways of finding out information. Some of it would be true. Some other things wouldn't be. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I think that, you know, if you keep life simple and do it all again, you might miss out. I mean, I, I enjoy social media. Uh, look, I have a little moan about a few things, but I try not to do it too much because, and also if anyone is overly critical, I just have to leave that message go and and, and just let them say what they want to say and, and not reply because otherwise you're just, just joining in, aren't you, really? And, uh it's best to avoid it. I mean, it's not easy. And occasionally I have, again, you know, not, not been able to quite resist the temptation to reply to someone who's annoying me. But in general, I try to keep away from that. It's the only way. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. Well, what sort of era is this, Neil, would you say? I mean, I think one of your qualities is, you know, you, you are good at looking at what's happening right now, not necessarily always harking back to the past. And there's been great players in the past, of course. There they're great now. Are we in a special time for the sport, do you think? Yeah, I think we are. I mean, I think we're in a very interesting time because you've still got the players of the class of 92, which everyone knows about, you're still able to win. You know, I mean, all of those ITV events last year that took place, even the British Open, which was a short format, had a class of 92 player in the final, which is an amazing stat. So we've got those guys, which I think is important because they're very well known, you know, John, Mark and Ronnie, Mark Williams, that is, you know, and John Higgins, they're, they're still very sort of very familiar to people in the game. So we've got that. We've got 
the next generation. Neil Robertson is a great statesman for the game. Mark Selby, uh, Mark Allen, Sean Murphy, these sort of guys who are that, if you like, a generation below, maybe not quite that much younger, but they're in the next little group, aren't they? And now we had this missing era, but, you know, the players in the late 20s, mid to late 20s, haven't, haven't been doing a great deal. Now you've got Colin Wilson who's coming through, but you've got this sort of, sort of, a huge amount of uh, potential in Asia, the young players coming through. So it's got some interesting matches, you know, in the offing. And, um, you know, the game is changing, clearly, with the Chinese players coming through and the Asian players. So that's something to look forward to. I and mean, I think it's a good thing. You know, I mean, I put, again, something on social media saying that the game is moving forward when we saw that final in Berlin a couple of days ago. But a lot of people seem to take, take umbrage that say, well, you know, it's only because the class of 92 are getting old. But I don't see the problem with it. You know, I don't see the problem with finals that are without British or Irish players in them. I think it's great for the game, you know, and uh, mm. I think we're in a good position. Obviously, the pandemic has kippered us a little bit as far as all the, the tournaments in China, which were going nicely. So I don't know when they're going to resume. There's talk of Shanghai getting underway. But until we can get the world open again, I suppose we've got that ongoing problem. But one thing you can say is that the snooker tour has survived, which is a credit to everyone involved. Mm. No, definitely. Sort of how, how Nick mentioned sort of talking about the past and, and the commentary as well. There's obviously all that debate uh, last year, was it, with uh, the judge sort of spark talking about commentating needed to not talk about the past so much and moving on. And we've heard that maybe JV and Dennis are coming to an end now. Um, yeah. what, what was your take on all that? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I tend to sort of drift into the past a little bit. The other day, I remember... I was I heard a, a sort of repeat of the last year's German Masters final. I spoke. I was speaking about Perry Mounts, uh, Perry Mounts, <laughs> about five minutes, talking about how he used to put everything in sight. So maybe I'm guilty of being like that. But I think I'm one of those. I'm because I, I grew up um, in snooker when I was twelve or thirteen. I think I can go back further than a lot of the commentators actually uh, now. Not not so much JV and Dennis, but I can actually go back to the era of the late 70s when I was watching snooker with Ray Reed and John Spence all that. I don't think we should forget these people, you know, in the same way that in 20, 30 years, we can still speak about Judd Trump when his career is maybe what it is, you know, now presumably he'll, he'll be out of the game, but then I suppose maybe he'll still be playing. But I don't have a problem with that. But I, I think that um, anyone that's commentating has a duty to know the players out there. And there'd be one or two have been guilty of someone don't know anything about this player and that player. That's a little bit of a shame because you, you do have a duty to make an effort. I do think that. Uh, I don't mean, I'm not naming any of those guys. I think those two, are, are when they're gone, they're Dennis and JV, it'll be a sad day because they've offered a lot over the years and people think that uh, commentators easy. I think Joe Perry got it right. He said, you know, the, I've worked with Dennis and JV and I, and I think I've, uh, people don't realise what goes on behind the scenes. They're good real professionals in their trade, you know, they know when to speak, when not to speak, and they've got a rich history in the game, and uh, I'll be sorry to see them go, I suppose everything has to come to an end, that they're, you know, getting on in years, and, but uh, it won't necessarily be the same, I mean, I don't think you'd want necessarily a commentary box with all young players in there who have got no necessarily broadcasting experience or anything else, I think you, the balance between young and old is, is, is key, and uh, I think that's what I would like to listen to more than anything else. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a boring answer to go with a balanced one, but it's right, isn't it? You want you want a mix and you want you want to talk about the past a bit, but not too much and keep yeah. it up to date. And yeah, we've said it on here a few times. We, um, 
there's more than enough snooker going on to have all these voices in. And even even across the World Championship as one tournament, there's enough there's enough sessions there to to keep the the, the old guys around and mix it up with some new guys. Yeah, I, I don't like it when you know you hear someone say, "Well, I've never seen this guy play before." And you say, "Well, hang on." I mean, there might be there might literally be one or two people that you haven't never seen play. I mean, that's going to be the, the nature of it. And um, but I, I think I think. Um, you, you you probably if you're commentating on the sport, you should have made some sort of an effort to have to have actually watched some of the people play that are in it. And um, I mean, I think that's quite important because it's not you know, no one owns the game, and certainly we, you can't always harp back to the era of the eighties and nineties. You know, you've got to appreciate the people coming through now. Listen, I, I when I was playing, I had issues with one or two commentators that I didn't enjoy their commentary. Um, and uh, I was hoping they wouldn't be in the commentary box, actually. And I couldn't help it. I just thought, well, this person's not really into me, not interested in me. And, um, you know, uh, so I, I dare say that the, the players now might have the same issue going on in their own mind. They might think, well, you know, well, why, is he, why is he speaking about X, Y, Z player? And he doesn't seem to know what's going on in the, in the game now. I think it's important that you, you try and, try and stay relevant if possible. Uh, how long that will last for everybody, I don't know. Mm. Very good way of saying it, Neil. Well, you are listening uh, here to Talking Snooker with uh, Phil Hagen, Nick Metcalf, and our special guest, uh, Neil Folds. And I think, Phil, it's high time we moved on to our listener correspondence. Isn't it? We've had loads of that come in, Neil. So um, we'll tr- maybe try and work through it as quickly as we can. And we've got Marco Steano first on email says, an obscure question for Mr. Neil Folds. Do you remember a match you played at the Meter Masters in 1991 against Italian player Claudio Ravnani? You won 6-0. Yeah, I do. I remember a little bit about that match. Um, I, I, I bless him, I don't think he was that great a player. But then, <laughs> um, you know, Italy then and now are probably not known for their snooker players. But what I would say about that is that that was one of the great events. It's such a shame there's only one of those Mito World Masters events because there was the main event, there was all kinds of players. It was covered up by a sky that had a, a like a camera on a on a sort of a on wheels that used to go around from table to table. It was very well covered. It was a great event. But there was a, a men's tournament, a women's tournament, uh, there was a mixed doubles, a junior event, of course. That's the first time we ever saw O'Sullivan, Higgins and Williams, you know, in the same room basically. I mean most of us knew about some of them anyway. Um and of course, John Higgins won that. Uh, there was so much going on that that. Uh, well, I, don't, I can't even remember if the tournament took a week. It's hard to think they could have got through it all. There's a lot of table. It's a terrific event. I remember winning that match, and I remember losing to a Canadian called Brady Golan, who I knew quite well that week. So, and John Parrott and I played in the doubles, uh, as we used to at the time. So it was a, a very, very good event. Jimmy White won the main event, and um, it was a real festival of snooker, actually. And, it's a shame it was a one-off. I don't know. Maybe it was a big money loser. I don't know. But uh, that event was quite special that week. What a compliment that Marco has remembered you smashing Claudio Ravignani in the first round. <laughs> well, the I, all going on. The match. I, I do remember winning <laughs> it, but that's about all I remember. Okay, we'll move on to number two. This is Martin Eccles on email. Um, as I live near Goffs, we, we tease this Goffs one. I'm wondering what Neil thought of the venue and any memories or funny stories that may have happened there. 
Listen, the, the Irish Masters of Goss was a great event. As we know, it was sponsored by a tobacco company, so they put a lot of money into it, just like the Masters at Wembley. It was a big deal, and it was the hospitality was great. Um, well, I, I, a few things I remember about that event. First of all, 1989, I lost to Alex Higgins in the first round there. I mean, he turned up on one leg, basically, because he'd, he'd had that injury. And um, he got an enormous reception. It was frightening, really. They were very complimentary to me, the, the spectators, but they really loved Alex. I lost to Alex. I thought, well, I'm, I've hit rock bottom here. You know, I've lost to a guy on one leg. And, of course, he went on to beat <laughs> Stephen Hendry and win the thing. So I felt a little <laughs> bit better about that. You know, <laughs> I tell you what, I, I, it's not a funny story, but I do have a great regret about the, um, the Irish Masters because I never kind of, kind of got to grips with the fact that there was a very social occasion. And you were invited by the, um, uh, the, the the tournament director, Kevin Norton, who a lot of people in Sticker will remember. He, he used to get, get all the players to go to lunches and dinners on sessions when they weren't playing and meet with all the sponsors and all that. And I, for some reason, whether it was my own stupidity, I didn't really get involved in all that very often. And he would say, oh, you know, there's a dinner if you would like to come to it. In other words, I, it wasn't really, would you like to come to it? You are coming to it. But I, I maybe didn't do that. I was more thinking about my own game. Because I got in the final of that one year, lost to Steve. And I don't think I did enough hospitality for his liking. Because when I dropped down the rankings and I was down to one number 20, I was up to provisionally number five on the next season. So I really should have got a wild card that year. I think it, I should have done. And he, he was very honest, Kevin. He said, listen, you should be getting a wild card. We're going to give it to, I think it was James Watson I got it. He goes, the reason I'm giving you the wild card is because you never made any effort to come to any of the lunches or dinners or any of the hospitality. You turned up, played your matches and went. And he um, was quite blunt, but he was right. And I kind of learned a lot that year. I was quite naive thinking that that was just another event. I used to keep my head down and want to play and practice and go back to the hotel, just be out of the way of it. But it was a social event. It was well-organised. And he, he asked a lot of the players. And it suited some players, I think. You know, you think of someone like Ken Darty, who would who goes to all those events. He's very good social, and Dennis, but I wasn't, and it, it, I paid the penalty. I didn't get the wild card, and I actually took on board what he was saying because you have to make more of an effort than I did, because that was one of the great social uh, tournaments of this of, of the, the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, good memories, maybe bittersweet memories as well. As that, well then, yeah. thank you for that. Uh, Gareth Collins here on email. Uh, well done on providing a fantastic podcast. Thank you, Gareth. I've been a snooker fan for over 30 years. And although Neil doesn't play anymore, I can still remember how he used to get through the ball and deep screw shots were his forte. I would love to know from each of you, so we're perhaps going to quickly have a go at this ourselves as well, the greatest single performance in terms of standard you have ever seen. You would make my day reading this out. I appreciate the demand for asking questions that to Neil will be high from Gareth. So maybe you'll go first, Neil. Well, um, okay. I mean, it, it's difficult. I, I would say the best I saw anyone ever play probably be Ronnie O'Sullivan. Um, when he played Kyron Wilson in the English Open final, uh, the year was in Barnsley. I think he missed about six balls in the whole day. Big Kyron 9-2. Kyron hardly missed a ball. So I think that that was the greatest I ever saw anybody play uh, in all the years. Uh, it's almost as near to perfection as, as what I've seen as a player. And um, that was in the final as well. I mean, I think the evening session was 6-2. I think Kyron might have been sort of hoping that he was going to make a comeback, but he didn't hardly come to the table. So 
as far as what sticks to my mind is the best of us in any one play, I think that was it. Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, there's so many options. I mean, for something I was at, Trump in the 2019 World Final against Higgins was right up there. In with all these things, you get bonus points for it being the World Championship Final as well. There might have been other matches where people have produced slightly higher standards, but the fact it was a World Championship Final, it, it was it was unbelievable because uh, I think most people were leaning into Higgins getting the better of him before that game. It, obviously, it was compet- very competitive, expected to be, but people thought Higgins' experience might do the job, but Trump just, it was unbelievable, just blasted him away, really. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's been plenty of options, but I'll, I'll go with that one. Yeah, I, I took it as being there as well. That's a very good suggestion, Bill. I'm already thinking that that was come close to the one I, I'm going for. I, I'm also going for World Final. It was Ronnie O'Sullivan when he beat Barry Hawkins. Now, I was there on that Monday afternoon, and, you know, I always think, you know when you're in the presence of something great in sport, almost like a genius thing. I see, funny enough, someone was asking me a couple of days ago about the best people I've seen in sport because Tom Brady, the NFL great, is on, on the verge of retirement. And I mentioned sort of seeing Messi and Federer. They have that kind of balletic wizardry about them. And Ronnie on the snooker table is similar. And that day he was like gliding around. And I remember being absolutely hypnotised by him. And Barry Hawkins played amazingly to lose 18-12. I mean, he's one of the best performances to be a world final runner-up that I can remember. Mm. That's the one I go for from Ronnie. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll move on then, Phil, I think. And it's uh, another email for you. Yeah, this is an interesting from Yavar Durrani. Uh, why do you think plenty of Ronnie O'Sullivan fans don't like Judd Trump? They are always taking digs at him and are delighted when he loses. Judd plays a similar sort of game to Ronnie and one you'd expect most of them to support Judd once Ronnie retires. That's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I think Ronnie's got a real um, cult following, maybe in the game. But I think, I think with that, you get people that you know. For some, if someone's good, the other person has to be bad. I mean, I don't know why you can't enjoy them all. Uh, there is a bit of a rivalry, I suppose. Although, you know, I don't think Ronnie feels like in the same rivalry with Judd as he has one or two other players. I mean, he's had a few uh, words with players in the past. I think he respects Judd. Um, uh, you're right. I think that if you like Ronnie, there's no reason why you shouldn't like Judd. But um, maybe it's because he's been the big threat to him over the last few years. I mean, you think about it, of all the players in the game, Ronnie's had a, the, the sign over a number of players. He's had the beating of players. Uh, there's been a few exceptions, obviously, Neil Robertson and Mark Selby. But Judd has actually got the better of him quite a lot. You know, he's beaten three times in the Northern Ireland final. Um, obviously, Ronnie won that tour championship in 2019, but he's been on the wrong end of a few. So maybe what the O'Sullivan fans who are, are thinking that there's no one better, they feel that you know, Judd isn't intimidated enough by him as he should be. But I, I mean, I, I don't see that. I don't like that um, sort of... Uh, I've seen the, the kind of comments that have been made by the, the emailer there that, you know, if you like Ron, Ronnie, you can't like anybody else, which I don't think is right, really. It shouldn't be like that. It's a sort of tribalism that seeps in from yeah. other sports that doesn't really need to happen in snooker, does it? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. But uh, you're always going to get that. I mean, you know, there are people that think that Ronnie O'Sullivan at his best is the greatest player of all time. I mean, I probably agree with that. But, you know, I think we can enjoy plenty of other players, really. I mean, to play Ronnie is quite difficult. And uh, if, you're not, if you're not sort of phased by him, then I think you deserve a lot of credit for that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
Good, good way of saying it. James Beard on email. I've just finished listening to your master's podcast. As ever, it was highly entertaining and perfectly captured what was an excellent week of snooker. I hear the legend Neil Folds is coming on your show. So I thought it was high time to make a point about something that's been bothering me for a while. Sad, I know. Whenever, nothing sad when it comes to snooker minutiae, James. Whenever Neil appeals on ITV snooker coverage, the caption writer puts former world number three below his name. Now, don't get me wrong. To be number three in the world, anything is amazing. But I feel this doesn't do justice to Neil's achievements. What about six times tournament winner or three times ranking finalist or former ranking title winner or international open winner or best of all, perhaps 15 times tournament finalist? Maybe Neil can have a word with his ITV bosses and get the recognition of his achievement that he deserves. Does that bother you, former world number three? Would you rather something else, Neil Folds? You know what? If I'm going to start worrying about stuff like that, then I'm, I'm a bit too precious. Um, yeah, the interesting thing is, I actually, I don't know if anyone's ever thought of this, I never, ever get to see that caption. Unless I was to watch it back, I don't know what they're saying about me, because when I'm, when I'm on there, I've got no idea what the caption said. It could say anything under my name. I figured that it says former world number three. And, and um, okay, I mean, it, you know, in, in itself, it, it's just become a bit of a cliche now. I was former world number three and they're not really interested in, in anything that I run or not that there's that many to choose from. But uh, I really am not bothered about stuff like that. Um, I have seen people say, you know, why is this guy on here talking about uh, these players when he only reached these heights? I, I actually remember a match at the Crucible. Um, I was still with the BBC then when it was in Hen Stephen Hendry's last season when he played John Higgins um, and he beat John. And they had the middle session of that match, two of the greatest players I've seen, and they were very poor. It was a bad session. And I remember being quite critical of their games. And the amount of people that said, oh, well, how dare you criticise John Higgins and, and um, Stephen Hendry? What right have you got? You only ever reached number three in the world. You've got no right to criticise them. Which made me think, well, OK, fair enough. But then hardly anyone is able to criticise them because John Higgins has been world champion multiple times. Stephen Hendry had already won seven. So basically, maybe Steve Davis is the only person that could be objective on that session of snooker if I'm not allowed to, and they were missing blacks off the spot. So, you know, people take it sort of whatever way achieved or didn't achieve in the game to, to, to sort of maybe say that I'm not qualified to speak about it. But I, I, what I'll say is I literally don't know what that caption says because I've never, never looked back at it. So it could say anything under my name. <laughs> That's lovely. Well, also, thanks as well to, to James for saying, P.S., I love the term audio footprint that you used on the Masters podcast. Yeah, I've got my words a bit mixed up, uh, Phil. Didn't quite mean to say it, but it's nice that someone liked the phrase anyway. But anyway, sorry, sir, you next. Um, this is from Graham Henderson on email. Uh, Neil is my favourite commentator as he brings humour to everything, but is also able to be serious when being serious is the order of the day. Does Neil remember coming to the Isle of Wight for an exhibition in the Working Men's Club near Shanklin? He was only around 18 at the time, and he had been warned how notoriously tight the pockets were on the match table. However, with his first shot, he knocked in a long red and made a century. Forty years later, this achievement has never been repeated and it is still talked about in these parts. Good wishes, Graham. <laughs> well, I do remember something about that because I, I just lost in the World Junior Final. And a guy came up to me and said, oh, I'd love you to come and play. Because that was on the Isle of Wight. He goes, if you could come here and do an exhibition. I think he was paying me 100 quid, which was good money. 
going back all that time, it's my first ever exhibition. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I do remember, I think I did knock in a century. I think he's right. He's got a good memory, that chap. <laughs> um, but the amount of times you would go to a club and they would say, well, you know what? You're never going to pot a ball on this table. And they'd almost take pride <laughs> in it. We've seen what you play on. We've seen the pockets that you put on the TV. <laughs> you wait till you get on there. And of course, it turns out the pockets were a little bit easier on the tables <laughs> in the clubs than, than, um, than, than they were on the match table. So uh, that's, that's nice. That's kind of something I remember that because I actually have a vague recollection of that night, actually. Oh, that's lovely. Well, smashing, smashing memory. It's really nice that, that, that we were able to share it on here. Uh, next up, Florian uh, Hazeli, who says, thank you so much for reading out my email about potential behind-the-scenes guests. Thanks also for butchering my last name. Oh, sorry about that. It's Hesele, by the way, in case you were wondering. Hesele. Bit closer, I think, that time. Since Neil... Now, this is... A, I have to try and praise this a bit. Now, since Neil is an avid cricket fan as well as snooker, I presume he's as fascinated by statistics as I am. What metrics would he use to judge the quality of a tournament as a whole? My suggestion would be average a percentage of the frames won by the losing player, e.g. a 6-5 scoreline, would give you 5 sixths or 83% total number of frame-winning breaks. In my book, this would be 70-plus breaks. Not sure about the obsession we all have with centuries, but maybe he can expand on that as well. Then the average of close frames, i.e. frames won by fewer than X points, probably something like 13, so on the black, to account for craftsmanship. All the best from your now regular, a.k.a. two-time correspondent from Vienna, Flow. I reckon the clues on 3-2-1 with Ted Rogers back in the day were, <laughs> were, were, were easier to understand than that. What do you make of that, Neil? No, it, listen, it sounds quite complex, but I, I'm, there's something in it. I, I, the thing I do think about, the, the way that these stats could possibly be improved, and, and bearing in mind, to, to do the... Um, what we call the fruit machine, which has got all the information, uh, which which is at our disposal in the commentary, pot success, safety success, rest success, long pot success, all that stuff. You've got to be quite um, a good player, I think, to know it. And I know that Gary Wilkinson has some involvement in that these days, and Ian Burns. So you've got to be a snooker player, perhaps, to be in judgment. But what I would say is the, the, the one that I would like to see made more of is when they talk about our players' pot success, I think the pots that, that take place in live play would, would count for something. Like someone, like a, um, Judd Trump might have a 97% pot success. But in truth, he's not missed any balls that were in, in live play when his opponent could win. But usually when he gets to the colours, he'll play a few flashy shots and he might miss an easy shot playing a crowd shot. So I think that the most telling stat, which we don't yet have, is in live play, what, what kind of pot success. So... If you miss one on the colours, that doesn't get... You should have that as well, but you should have pots in live play, I think, because I think that is the most significant stat I can think of that he's not currently covered. As far as that five uh, percentage, 83% of five, six, five, I'm not sure I completely understand that at this stage, but I'd like to have it explained to me a bit better, perhaps. Um, right, we'll move on to Gareth Williams on Twitter. I would like to know what Neil, uh, what tournament Neil would consider as the fourth major in inverted commas after the big three. And also his opinion on the recent comments from Neil Robertson and Judd Trump about the World Championship potentially moving away from the Crucible. Yeah, well, anyway, um, I mean, obviously, as far as, far as um, 
it moving away from the crucible. I'm, I'm completely against that. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that it should always be at Sheffield forever because we don't know what the future um, is going to hold. But, you know, the interesting thing with Neil is I keep hearing about how Neil is, you know, he walks into the shots and he's inconvenienced by the two-table setup. But he has been world champion. And that, that crucible is no smaller now than it was when he won it the last time. <laughs> so I don't get that. And it is a bit tight. This is more than a bit tight. It, it's really cramped in there. We know that. And you're sitting next to your opponent. Um, sometimes they're going to want to speak to you. Other times they're not. You can almost hear them sort of breathing down your neck. The front row are, are very tight. It, it's not ideal for, for a two-table setup, let's be honest. But I do think it adds to the magic of it all. If you can get, you can survive three matches the two tables set up with the curtain down and all the cheering potential at the other table, you're capable of anything. I mean, I think that it's a big part of Sheffield. It's a big deal for the spectators. It's a shame we can't get more people in there, but that's not going to change. It's not going to make the cruise any bigger, I don't think. So that's unfortunate. I think there's no time quite like the World Championships in the middle of April when we're going to Sheffield. It's incredibly exciting. Maybe if you're an overseas player, that way, but even the you know the many of the Chinese players now with their uh, involvement in Shef- Sheffield in academies. I mean, Bing Chow has now moved to that area, so they may think of it as quite a magical place. As far as as far as um, as I say, Neil is concerned, he's going to have to get over that business with walking into the shots. Uh, I think he'll be world champion again. I think he's just going to have to get on with it because there's nothing we can do about that. And as I say, he's been a world champion before. I don't see any reason why he shouldn't win it again. So um, it's got to stay there. As far as the other question being um, I, I, the fourth major, I mean, obviously, we're assuming that the BBC events are, uh, which are, of course, on Eurosport as well, they're the ones that you consider the big three. I know Dave Hendon is the one they didn't like to hear about the, <laughs> those events being triple grand events. I understand why, because a lot of it's catered for TV. Yeah. I, I didn't think the champion of champions for a long time, although qualification for that can be a bit sketchy let's be honest there's no I mean I don't know how we're going to get 16 players 16 different tournament winners in that by the time it's played next because there's a bit of a complication next season isn't there with the a lot of the events are going to be after the Champions Championship because of the World Cup it's, it's a bit complicated so um, I think the Tour Championship now probably would fit into that category although if the event in Saudi ever took place and okay, I know it's not everyone's cup of tea as far as the prize fund, it's going to be massive. So people might consider that the fourth major. If you can manufacture a tournament out of thin air and make it into a classic, that's the problem. You know, maybe the Tour Championship in four or five years when it's really, um, has a bit more history about it, can, can call itself the fourth major if the game indeed needs one. <laughs> yeah, now to be totally fair and, uh, and honest, Neil, we, we did say there we try and keep you to this time now because you might want to give the man's best sure, friend a late, a late walk. Is that about right then? He's all right. He's all right for a few minutes, but he wanted want to go out in, in a few minutes, but I'm okay for a bit longer. I can't hear the barks coming yet, so I'm okay. <laughs> right, just to tee you up, just to tee you up then, what, what's the dog called? Jack. He's not called Bark Selby, as I, <laughs> as I once said before. Uh, he's, <laughs> I can't want to hear. So... Uh, <laughs> What what was the other one? Bark Selby and Pug Mountjoy. Pug Mountjoy. That's that's, <laughs> the, that's the level. That's the level. You couldn't make it up, could you? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
maybe what we'll do is, Phil, we'll sort of try and select some of these later ones. And we'll always invite you back, Neil, perhaps, and ask some of the other ones that if, if we no, have, you have to we'll go. Okay for a few minutes. I, I like Dan Hay here on Twitter, who says he really wants to hear about what happened when Neil met Morrissey. Did you meet Morrissey? <laughs> well, I kind of did. It, that, that story, maybe I've sort of embellished it over the years, but I mean, I, I've always been, I was a massive Smiths fan from the very beginning. You know, uh, right from the days when I used to drive all around the country because um, I, I, when I first um, became professional, I, Barry Hearn arranged for me to go to all the, the Riley clubs in the south of England. It's something that Steve Davis did before that and practiced three days a week in places like Aylesbury, Ipswich, Barking, so all these different clubs. And I used to spend a lot of time in the car and I became a massive Smiths fan right at the beginning. Um, so I was in awe of, of the Smiths, a bit in awe of Morrissey, and I did kind of have the chance at the BBC um, uh, Centre in Shepherd's Bush. I was in the same room as him, basically, without going into it. And um, he, I, you don't know what anyone's going to be like. He didn't seem the most approachable, and he certainly didn't know anything about snooker. So I kind of, it never really happened in the way I would like it to have done. They say you should never meet your heroes. I once met Ian Botham, um, who I was a bit worried about because I went on a programme called Sporting Triangles, which for a while was the ITV... With Nick Harry. Of... With Nick yeah. Harry. It was the ITV version of Question of Sport. And uh, I'm a massive cricket fan, as, as, as you said earlier. And Ian Botham was on, uh, one of the team captains on that as well. He's probably the only one that's the team captain on both of them. Um, uh, you know, um, Question yeah. of Sport and Sporting Triangles. And on that night, I thought, I'm going to meet Ian Botham. This is going to be the best thing. And they said, well, Ian Botham, he's not coming out of his dressing room yet. He, he wants a bottle of champagne in there and a television. His wife was going to be on Wogan that night. His wife, his wife Kath, was going to be on Wogan. And she was um, speaking about uh, Ian's career in a, some book or something that she had out. I forget what it was. I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm in trouble here. This is going to be another disappointment to me. But Ian Botham, when he came out and had his glass of champagne, was a really lovely guy. I really enjoyed being around him. Um, but with Morrissey, I was in the same room as him, but I didn't quite have the courage to go up. He didn't seem approachable. It may have been that I missed out on a great chance. I suspect when they say you should never meet your heroes on this occasion, it was probably the right thing, but it never quite happened. Yeah, you might be right there. Unapproachable <laughs> seems to be his sort of vibe, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. That's the, that's the feeling I got. The undercurrent was there. Yeah. Um, we've got one from Simon Biggin on Twitter here. Has Neil ever rang BBC Radio 2's Ken Bruce and played Popmaster? I know he's a fan. I haven't done. I love Popmaster. My day, my morning is usually tailored around it. Whatever I'm doing, I'll either be in the car at half past ten or I'll be walking around, walking the dog or whatever, and I'll have my um, earpieces in and I'll be listening to it. I'm, the answer is no, but I get a bit critical of some of the people that go on there and seem not to know anything about music from the outset. So I'm a bit frightened to now because if I went on there and did badly, <laughs> I'd have to shut up because I've been, a, you know, I, listen, I just quite like the show. I love people that follow music, but people that go on there and don't know the most basic thing. I think, how on earth did you get on the show? Um, but I would be concerned that if I went on there, I mightn't do very well because I've had days when I've got one question right, which is three points and sort of most of them right. But um, sometimes, to put it this way, Anyone who's listened to it knows if you get the first question wrong, you're in trouble because that's usually pretty easy. In which <laughs> case, you, you kind of uh, you're under pressure then if that if you don't get that one. Fair enough. Uh, 
Matthew Tempest on Twitter. Which of these lost venues do you miss and why, Neil? I mean, you can give short answers. There's quite a few. Preston Guildhall, Darby Assembly Rooms, Reading Hexagon, Wembley Conference Centre. Well, you know, they all hold great memories for me, actually, all of those four venues. I mean, funny enough, I, I noticed Dave mentioned on his uh, podcast the other day that the, the, the rumour had been that the assembly rooms had, had burnt down, but apparently that's not the case. Um, I mean, I was lucky enough to play in a final there um, at the British Open. I have great memories of that place. I actually, one of my worst experiences was there because I lost to Robbie Foldvari, who, who was a former billiard player from Australia, and I absolutely slaughtered him in the press conference straight after the match said he was a disgrace all these things I've made up with Robbie by the way since he's a very slow player and so I've always had a little bit of um, given a little bit of slack to to someone who gets the microphone uh, thrust under their nose at the end of the match and says bad things so I had good memories of there the Hexagon was the first place I ever reached a ladder stage of event uh, the, the, the year that Dennis won the the Grand Prix, he knocked me out in the semi-finals. I mean, the Masters, there's too many things to say about the Conference Centre. And as far as Preston is concerned, yeah, I mean, it's the same. They're all great venues. I've got, I've had a, I've said today before, there should be a tournament that goes to one of those different venues every year. One year it'll be at the Hexagon, then, you know, if the Guild or whoever reopened, you could go there. You could just go to some, revisit some of these old venues and just play an event one year in a row there. Um, because we've got great memories of so many of that era. Yeah, that sounds like a very sensible idea, actually. Um, this one here is from Joe Gibney on Twitter. Do players take notice of head-to-heads? Does how you did years ago against the same player really matter? Well, I don't suppose it matters that much. Um, I, I think the one that I can think of that, that, that built up quite strongly was, I mean, Ali Carter spent so many years without ever beating Ronnie O'Sullivan, it became a big thing. I think it was North 17, wasn't it? And that was clearly the fact that he hadn't beaten Canada for something. And then, of course, he ended up beating at the Crucible when they had that argy-bargy in the match. <laughs> um, I think I think most of the time, as long as you've beaten somebody once, it helps. You know, If you've never beaten a player, then um, <laughs> until you do, you, that head-to-head is going to play a little bit of sort of a nagging part in the back of your mind that... Uh, got a problem but I don't think it unless it's an outstandingly one-sided head-to-head then I don't think it means a great deal Did, did you ever have a bogey player? I think some players do have a player who you would expect them to be but struggle against Well uh, yeah and uh, I, I would think uh, I, I didn't get the better of Alan Alan McManus he, he's been my nemesis uh, for years <laughs> I mean you know I always tell him now that all those wins uh, you know he, he had a load of wins against me I always said to him, you know what? You were lucky in all of those matches. Uh, <laughs> I had one close shave with him. I, well, he, I was close to beating him in the Masters, beating by the odd frame in the semi-finals. I think it was the year he beat Stephen. Um, and I had a close match with him in the Crucible, which went either two of the side or, or very close to. But he was just too clever for me, Alan. And he still is. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's finish off then. Thanks to Dan Cooper on Twitter. I think you've answered the one he asked about whether you're tempted by seniors or exhibitions or there's a cure way for good. I think you're not really tempted, but you might take it out the odd Christmas. You said that. So maybe we'll finish with Andrew Dixon, who says he'd like to hear about your opinion on the most influential players ever. Would there be anyone on the list of top influential players that's not on the list of best players? So who's, who's the ones you think have had the most influence? 
Well, I think, I think, I think, in my opinion, if I'm going back to Ray Reid, I think he influenced the game quite a lot in the in the years when it, it became a, a, a sport on colour TV. I was, I thought he was a very uh, charismatic guy with lots of aura about him. People watched Nuka because of him. Steve Davis, I think, is probably the most influential. Of the I have a lot of respect for Steve. You know, he's a very shy sort of bloke. When I see Steve at a tournament, we never speak about much, but. I have a huge respect for him. I think he 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 brought snooker up a, a notch or two when he when he came good. And also, he's a great guy, Steve. You know, he do a lot of things for you, but he's very modest and unassuming sort of fella. So I think he's he's played a big part in the game. I, I was I've, I used to think that Cliff Wilson is a name you wouldn't think of very much, but he was someone that I loved watching play. I think he he played snooker with a smile on his face, and he was a fantastic putter of the ball. I was I thought they were quite big. In the modern game, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stick to the obvious ones, really, the likes of O'Sullivan. Um, and a special mention for Paul Hunter, who who knows what a career he could have had, but if things had been differently for him and he would have not passed away all those years ago, you know, one of three masters. You know, I think he, at the time, was he became quite influential in the game. There was a lot of young people followed the game and played the game because of him. You know, but we don't, maybe speak about him as much because he tragically lost his life so young. So uh, I, I think he was, I mean, you know, there was that, those matches where he played as Sullivan and they're both wearing Alice bands. They're both sort of young men doing what they do best. And uh, I, I think it's w- worth mentioning Paul, you know, I think, I think he's greatly missed in the game. Mm. Definitely would agree with that. Well, Neil, we knew you'd be brilliant. You've been a delight. We're so grateful for you coming on this evening and joining us. And um, will you come back and see us again one day? Yeah, we'll do, Nick. Nick, Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Phil. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed it very much. No, we loved it, yeah. We knew it'd be great. And, yeah, not that us down one bit. And, uh, yeah, um, as I said before, we're big fans of your work and sure everyone else who got in contact as well. So, yeah, been a real treat. (laughs) Enjoy the rest of the season. Speak soon. All the best to you. Thank you very much indeed. Well, that was an absolute treat, wasn't it, Phil? We're going to disappear as well. Any other business for you, sir, or is that it? No, that's it. There's more more snooker to watch this week at the Championship League. And then, actually, the Turkish qualifiers start this week as well, so that's an interesting one as well. So we'll be watching that. Back next week, and we're going to do a special Your Views episode, aren't we? We're quite far behind, actually. We've had loads of correspondence in, loads of calls for Neil, but loads of other emails and tweets as well, and we'll catch up with those uh, next week. Always room for more, though. Tweet us at Talking Snooker or email talkingsnooker at yahoo.com. But that's it for now. What a special episode this has been. Another marathon, but of course with good reason to be joined by someone so special in the game. Uh, Thanks indeed for your company. For now, from Neil, Phil and myself. Cheerio. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.